So we're going to be starting our TA podcast, the one, the only, uh, everybody's been wanting to watch it. Everybody's ready for it. We're here. We're pumped. We're jamming. We're ready. So, uh, we're going into the subject of de-individuation. So the picture you're actually looking at is from Lubbock, Texas. If you don't know Lubbock, it is the home of the Texas Tech University Red Raiders. This was taken after uh, a win against Michigan State University in the NCAA Final Four playoffs, which consequently ended in riots. They overturned a car, they set on fire these, I don't know if you guys have them in Massachusetts, but these electric scooters that you rent to get around. Oh yeah. Yeah, so they set those on fire. They created this big bonfire, um, ended with like smoke cans, tear gas, everything that would make it a that game. <laughs> We're coming back to basically the whole premise of the class is culpability. Uh, we're hearing that word a lot. It's probably one of the most important uh, functions of psychology. Who is responsible? What makes them responsible? So why do people in crowds act differently than they would normally? So crowds reduce inhibitions and in individuals to behave in ways they would not normally because culpability is reduced because it is shared. When we look at the idea of what's going on when somebody is part of a crowd, we'll see this um, de-individuation where, like Hope said before, the culpability is dispersed. So you have people who are thinking that they're not going to get in trouble because they're protected by being in a group. And this does all, like also relate to aggression where people will start behaving aggressively in a situation where they might not have otherwise because they feel protected by um, a group. And this kind of has to do with the opponent process theory because um, just in the similar way that it relates to cognitive dissonance as an aversion towards one behavior, in this case violence goes down, like the likelihood that they will then engage in violence goes up. And so here, the aversion to violence goes down as they begin to see other people engaging in it. It doesn't seem as bad because everybody's doing it. It's the normal thing to do. So they begin um, engaging in aggressive behavior that they may have um, otherwise not engaged in just because they feel like the bond with the crowd. And they also feel that it's not as morally wrong as it would have been in another circumstance because everyone is doing it. It's the shared experience. Crowds will react in a way where if their ego is threatened, that if their ego is based on their identity or the group uh, that they identify with and they feel that their identity is threatened by an outside group, they are more likely to mobilize and act violently in a crowd or uh, they're more likely to mobilize their resources violently or non-violently uh, in order to gain either political status or uh, in increased benefits from that type of mobilization. And this would make sense with the sports scenario in the first slide too, um, just from thinking about it because not only 
could they riot when they win because they are celebrating their in-group and you know especially if the game is like the out-of-state person is there they are definitely the out-group and there's always some sort of rivalry even if it's like um just another normal school and it's not like the rival school like even if it's just any away game I feel like um and the other team feels like they're the out group there and so it kind of makes sense that it could this could be a result of both winning the game because you're celebrating with your in group and you're kind of like I don't know talking down or talking trash about the out group or it could work with if you lose a game because if some of your identity is built on your sports team as a player or as a watcher um then any that feels threatened and it could also result in similar feelings so when we kind of see this massive mobilization of people we're seeing greater levels of moral disengagement and cognitive dissonance um there's this idea as people become more desensitized towards negative emotions um they're more likely to engage in negative behaviors. So moral disengagement and cognitive dissonance would say there's an A process, which is, uh, I categorize this in this slide as the visceral aversion to killing or violence. Uh, innately, most of us have this aversion to using violence, to being abhorred by violence, by seeing it and being disgusted. Um, that B process, is what we tell ourselves to say, well, no, it's okay to do it in this instance because of X, Y, and Z. It's against these individuals because they are taking over. They are, um, I think in the instance for World War II, they had blamed the Jews for the loss of World War I, uh, the, demand, the horrible conditions of the economy, basically scapegoating the victim for right. all of the group's problems. So this would be something that you would most likely see with like organized group crime rather than spur of the moment group crime, like a riot after a sports game or like a, a peaceful protest that then turns into a riot or something like that. So like, is that my understanding yeah. that correctly? What we see when, when in this type of like organized, especially organized violence, this tendency to follow a leader. So someone is initiating the uh the conduct the violence someone is beginning to say this is okay to conduct against others because xyz we don't believe they are human we believe they are subspecies uh we believe that you know they are a direct threat to our economy they are destroying our country it depends on the type of rhetoric it depends on the type of group so I have a quote on this slide that says, tell them they are being attacked. Denounce pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works in every country. That is a quote from Hermann Goering, uh, who was tried <laughs> for his crimes against the Jews during the Holocaust. He was basically the propagandist leader for the Nazi party for the Third Reich. And that was how he was able to get all of these people within Germany to basically accept that they should exterminate the Jews. This works kind of dually because not only is it telling other people that they are not as 
good as those who are taking up violent acts against certain groups, but it's also reinforcing the people that are acting violently that they are being patriotic and that they're preventing the country from exposure to danger. Where like, even though the quote is directly persecuting those who are not engaging in the violent behavior, it it does offer some sort of validation for those people who are that they're doing the right thing. Right, and, and uh, we, we kind of saw that same line of thought in Rwanda. So it wasn't just in Rwanda, this was this massive ethnic massacre that was occurring over the span of a few months. Um, it wasn't just the Tutsis that were being massacred, but also moderate Hutus. So anyone who decided, no, I don't believe in this violence. I don't believe that we should be doing this violence against Tutsis they were also executed by these mobs. So we, we saw that this political structure that leaned toward the Hutu power structure, which was, had greater extremism, more ethnic uh, rivalry against the Tutsis, that if you were not going to participate in this type of killing, you were going to be killed yourself. Which makes sense in the fact that they um, need to keep their group boundaries very clear cut in order to kind of keep the group together. Because we see that when groups start to loosen their boundaries or kind of um, become too large because they're just like accepting too many people that they start to kind of split apart either into like sub factors or the, the group just disintegrates altogether. Well, and sometimes it, I feel that the alpha behaviors are sometimes just the ones that are different, the ones that are going against the, the norm. And then that builds and be, becomes the norm. And that's when you get your irate crowd. Like we see that in that um, psych study that's really famous where they had an individual face the wrong direction in an elevator to see if so instead of facing the door, the person would walk onto the elevator and face the wall. And what they would do is they would use the cameras in the elevator to see um, if one, people who got on the elevator after them would also stay facing the wall, or two, which is almost the more remarkable of the two hypotheses, is whether or not people would start, who, who were already in the elevator, people who were already there, had already staked their claim on the direction they were facing, were, you know, had been standing in the elevator, would change where they were standing to follow this person. And that's exactly what happened. So, but the researchers saw that as somebody would, uh, walk on to the elevator that was new and would see a person facing the wrong direction that they would kind of just walk on and stay facing the back. They wouldn't ever turn around. And then we also saw that even just one person out of a group that was already in the elevator would come in and face the wrong direction that you would see. And it was almost like it was subconscious for some of these people where they would just like slowly be facing the door and just start to slowly kind of turn around with their like just some micro adjustments until eventually everyone in the elevator is facing the wrong direction. And it's not necessarily that any of these people had a um, particularly dominant personality. They were all Confederates in the um, study going in the elevator. So I'm sure they manipulated it based on gender. I don't remember. But um, they they weren't dressed fancy or anything like that. They were just normal people. And people just followed right along. You know, they wanted to feel like they were either doing like the new cool thing or they wanted to feel like they were doing the right thing. We also see this with a study that um, 
they had professor uh, people, just normal people, not professors, in lab coats that would that would say that one line was like shorter than the other, even though it was objectively longer. And they would see if because they looked like um, professors or doctors or researchers, you know, they had a lab coat on all the fancy gear. Um, if people would agree with them, even though it was like, clearly the other line is longer. It wasn't one of those optical illusion tricks. It was like very obvious, couldn't be, couldn't be the other way around. And people would put the wrong answer just because they didn't want to agree with the professional in the situation. So it's interesting how different things can manipulate somebody's perception of authority, like clothes, height, proximity, gender, all of those things. We see people whose identity gets so focused into their group dynamic. Their whole self is not necessarily in a personal identity in the hobbies that they do or in the work that they do, but their whole identity is based on a group identity. Uh, when the when the groups, like you said earlier, when these groups become too unrecognizable, they will people will disaggregate into smaller groups, uh, just so that they have uh, less differences in culture. In uh, you know, they'll have greater emotional connection, greater sense of belonging and community. Um, these group identities. Uh, they're very important in forming communities. So when we see these kinds of in-group, out-group rhetorics, especially about immigrants, uh, it means different things for different types of people for different groups. But it's also dependent upon like not only your internal biases, but definitely also just like your most common environment. So like your biases are going to be formed by many different things. Um, some of them are conscious, some of them are subconscious and definitely where you grow up and where you live are going to affect your your biases in an implicit and explicit way. So kind of going back to that idea that Hope proposed of like, when you hear the word immigrant, what do you first think of? That's going to be different depending on like, even in America, what border do you live closest to? Are, do you, are you from the North? Is your first thought Canada? Or if you're from the South, is your first thought going to be the border on Mexico? I want to kind of show this clip of this TV show. And I think it's very important because when we talk about US history, not a lot of uh, maybe the dark seedy underbelly is kind of shown in our history. Uh, when I, I'm from the Midwest, I'm pretty familiar with Oklahoma. I lived on the Kansas-Oklahoma border for the most of my uh, life. And there was an incident that happened in 1921 called the, they called it the Tulsa race riot. The reality of what it was, like when I was, when I was being taught about it in school, it was called a race riot. But the reality was that it was a race massacre. It was a total massacre that was initiated by whites to kill the affluent community of Greenwood in Tulsa. Uh, there was an active mobilization of the KKK in Tulsa to attack this community in order to bring their social status down. While it says it's a, it, I'll, I'll say it is a dramatization of the violence perpetrated in the Greenwood Massacre of 1921, it's not really too much of a dramatization. I would say it's a fairly accurate depiction 
of what happened that day. And I have to emphasize again, like we don't know how many people died. We have a rough estimate. They say 300 for sure died at least. But we know that there were so many thousand more that disappeared that were never found. So again, we don't know where these people went. We don't know what happened to them.
when we, we view incidents like what happened during the Greenwood Massacre, it takes incredible political and social support to get that number of people in order to conduct that type of violence. As you can see, they showed that the Klan was there. Farmers were using planes to drop bombs on Black homes and Black businesses. That is something that was from eyewitness accounts yes. that occurred. Um, that takes an immense amount of social and political support and organization in order to conduct that type of attack. Uh, so that type of collective grievance was used, the, the grievance that these African-Americans were able to accumulate wealth, uh, create this Black Wall Street and were able to thrive in, in Tulsa, created this group grievance in the whites that led basically to say, okay, well, we can do this to you because we can. And it's that type of symbolic violence that basically says in power dynamics, it says we can rally this type of political support in order to conduct an attack against you because most people think like us. The whites in Tulsa did not have an actual decline in their power, but a perceived threat to their status. It was perceived, but not real. They used their social power in order to conduct this type of attack. We see this a lot in cases of scapegoating that um, we've seen throughout history where there's pretty much no truth in their allegations against these outgroups. And most of it is just like pretty much bullshit, but they are the most targetable often like a small enough minority that they couldn't rally against the, um, like in, in this case, the in-group that is trying to scapegoat them. Um, and they offer themselves uh, almost as like one of the easier targets. So, and unfortunately it's when you don't have these resources that you become often the group that is scapegoated because you are a less of a threat and you can't flip it onto the other group because you don't quite have the resources to do anything about it. Yeah, that is actually one of the reasons why not all groups will engage in this type of group violence. So groups have to have collective resources in order to mobilize. If groups do not have a strong shared identity if they do not have the money, they do not have, uh, in some cases, weapons to mobilize violently, uh, if, if they do not have the political support of the majority of their community, then they are not likely to mobilize. Also speaks to some of the motivations for um, targeting out groups. If you are a in-group that is technically a minority, but because you have the most resources, you're in power. Um, one, like going back to older history, it is advantageous just to keep the populations low of the other group um, so that they like don't have enough people to rise against you to where people outmatch resources almost, which is um, something that you see like, you know, in like a little older times than now. But it's also just like a reason to keep um, certain groups more impoverished than others so that they can't amass this resources. And it's exactly what you said that happened in the Tulsa massacre. They, even though the um, white 
population did not see their resources fall, they feared the um, African American population gaining resources, and that enough was motivation to um, not only politically mobilize in a way that allowed such like widespread horrific violence, but also to get the people on the ground mobilized, the people who maybe weren't um, privy to the more political movements behind it, but just the people who were also had those negative feelings towards the African American population, they were able to say like, oh, well, we want to prevent them from being able to overpower us. That's why we have to act now. And it was just like, adds fuel to the fire. They want to keep that dynamic um, shifted in their favor where they are much higher on the scale of resources and then the outgroup is much lower because it minimizes the threat that they could ever take. A researcher looked at about 60 cases that they pulled archival data for from um, lynchings in the United States that happened between 1899 and 1946. And really what they found was that as the, the people who are participating in the lynch mob, the number of people in the lynch mob became greater than the victims. The more and more the mob increased in people, the more um, transgressive behaviors that occurred. Not only because there's more people doing bad things, but also because as the group grew, there was support, you saw reinforcement of the violence in one people joining and then participating in different or uh, more violent acts. And you see that um, this, this fusion of responsibility that we talked about earlier, that idea that like, oh, well, other people are doing it. So I'm a little less likely to get in trouble, but also other people are doing it so I don't feel as bad because if it's okay to them, they're good moral people. Like I know this person, especially in the situations with the lynchings, when you still kind of like knew everybody in your city, it was people that you knew that you trusted. A lot of them like, you know, went to church with them um, that were all in this same lynch mob. So they didn't seem like they were doing something bad because how could these good, good people that I know that I live near how could they be doing something that is wrong even when what they're doing is like very apparently wrong and very apparently violent and we saw not only more acts of violent behavior but also that the violence escalated um so that the as the people in the mob grew the violence grew in severity as well as in frequency and yeah and i mean that goes in line with the cognitive dissonance is like you don't want to believe that these people right. are capable of doing something bad and you don't want to believe yourself is doing something bad and so again you're trying to close that process where you're saying okay i'm i'm doing something bad well if if all of these people are doing something that's wrong you know that it it's easier to say that the victim was wrong for especially in the case for lynchings or like, look at the case of Emmett Till. It's easier most of the time, you know, you hear this kind of idea, well, Emmett Till had it coming because he whistled at a white woman and he should have never done that. And so they're basically pla placing the blame for what happened to Emmett Till, which was absolutely disgusting and abhorrent violence and saying, well, normal people couldn't have done that. Be like 
we wouldn't have done that had he not whistled at a white woman. And so they're placing the blame for their own acts on the victim themselves. And it's easier to blame somebody who is different than you or doesn't exist in your in-group because it's hard to believe that anyone in your in-group would do something that horrible. So you put the blame on the person in your out-group. Just the mere fact that they are part of an out-group makes that that blame game easier right. um, because you already see them as less than because they're a part of your outgroup, which is not always how people feel about outgroups. To be to be clear, it's just something that can happen, and that that us versus them mentality is incredibly easy to fall into, and everyone is susceptible to it. Yeah, and, and again, it goes it goes hand in hand with where the the foundation of your own personal identity lies. So right. if if you do not have a secure personal identity in yourself and you have to basically find an external group identity to make up for that then you are going to feel less secure as a person when your group identity feels or perceives a threat you also want to say something we touched on about the hierarchical um, or the importance of hierarchical structures. Um, going back to the military, because I think that it's important we mention this, that that hierarchical structure is also built in, um, one out of necessity, obviously, but also um, kind of as a almost protective factor, because when you're a soldier, you are responsible for doing some things that you might find morally wrong. Um, not Obviously not all soldiers go to war because they want to engage in violence. Many of them want to prevent that from happening and they want to prevent the people they know from ever having to see it or deal with it. Um, and the hierarchical structure in the military of somebody else giving soldiers orders does in a sense work as actually a protective factor instead of a risk factor like we've been discussing this whole time where they get to kind of not feel as much guilt from acts they might find morally wrong because they were given orders and that's their job as a soldier is to follow orders and that's something that is very much so a part of military training um, is that idea of following orders um, and there's a reason that you that trust between leadership and um, soldiers, especially on the ground, is so important is because you are supposed to kind of, in a sense, blindly follow orders. And while that is, one, just extremely efficient, obviously, for war and organizational purposes, you can't not have a leader, um, it's, it does provide some this diffusion of responsibility, in a sense, to soldiers when they no longer have to feel as guilty because it wasn't their idea. They weren't doing it because they wanted to. They were doing it because they were given orders to do it. So when soldiers returned from Vietnam, it was an incredibly stressful environment. They were, they were being uh, booed and attacked for doing what they thought was their civic duty to protect our country. And the reality was that uh, there wasn't the same type of support for that war um, and the level of brutalization that occurred on both sides uh, really ended up breaking the morale of the military, which is what led to the all, the all volunteer force in 1973, where the draft was ruled unconstitutional. Um, and, it, and it was because we want people to, who are able to follow orders, but we also want people in the military, in leadership, who are going to make good decisions. 
who are not going to make bad calls, who are not going to do something that's counterproductive to, you know, the war effort. Which really goes to show you like how intrinsically people are against violence. Um, and I think that that's like pretty important for this lesson here is because like, even in a situation of war, those who are not actively participating are like turned away from supporting the military when they do things like this, when they do engage in horrific violent acts, even in war, which is obviously very intrinsically violent. Mm -hmm. And it just really, it goes to show you how that base state, the baseline state for most people is to be anti-violence and anti-brutality. Um, but in situations where they have an excuse or a way to alleviate the guilt that they would feel from those actions, it suddenly becomes less abhorrent to engage in. And I think that that really goes to show like how important it is to understand the impact of being in a group and how important it is for um, groups to have good leadership that, so they don't end up in situations like this. 2021, 20, 20, January 6th. What, how could this have happened? Who would have seen this coming? Who could have ever guessed that someone would, uh, someone, some group of people would make a run on the United States Capitol? Many researchers, believe it or not. Who, who in this, <laughs> and, who and I, say, I say this like this because I was ethnographic monitoring at the time for threats specifically posed to Congress, to our government, to our society. And uh, let, let's just say the writing was on the wall. Um, <laughs> January 6th is, Probably, um, while it took people by surprise, it didn't take people who study terrorism or conflict by surprise. Uh, it was very expected. It yeah. was discussed online extensively. It was extensively planned. Leadership made it very apparent what was gonna happen. It was going to be wild. I think it was going to be a wild protest. I think that was one of the headlines. Um, prior to the actual storming of the Capitol, you had President Trump was giving a speech. Um, as we know, um, he we consider him a populist candidate. He's very grass, uh, grassroots, very in with the people. He likes to perceive himself as very close to his followers, his constituency. So in that, we have a very close proximity to leadership and his group. Yeah, he used rhetoric like, we love you or I love you. Like, um, it was like very personal. Um, he want, you know, it was, I don't know, like very much so a, he, try, he was trying to demonstrate that he had a personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with his followers, that he like had a um, like loving attitude towards each and every one of them, that they were part of his family. And so it definitely generated a sense of group connectedness, which also as group connectedness increase, cr increases, 
so does the potential for um, prejudice, discrimination, hate against the out group increases as well. And that's especially important if, if, again, like we said, if your identity is based solely on that group. So if you, or let, let's take QAnon, for example, if uh, <laughs> I read a lot of QAnon theories over the past couple of months of uh, being an ethnographic researcher. Um, My condolences. Uh, you know, a lot of the rhetoric, a lot of the conspiracy stems around this conspiracy that others, other groups are trying to destroy America. Uh, basically, it's completely absolutist that you can't say, well, uh, there's this idea of partisanship that says like, okay, well, we can compromise because we both understand that we both want what's best for America. We just see right. different ways to go about that. And then there's another idea of partisanship that says Democrats are a part of a blood drinking pedophilic cabal who want to inject us with... Yikes. Uh, GPS, 5G, I don't know. I got the vaccine. My 5G reception hasn't gotten any better. Uh, <laughs> so it's it's this idea. And if you listen to the rhetoric and if you understand the historical and significance of some of the rhetoric, you can understand that there's a lot of anti-Semitism in it. There's a lot of dog whistle symbolic, uh, symbolic racism in it. And uh, that's the thing is you, Groups want to close that cognitive dissonance. They don't want to say, you know, if I, I'm not a bad person for believing that George Soros is trying to get the UN to invade the United States. And kind of this idea that we're dehumanizing an entire political party. So that's kind of where this has kind of taken a turn is that instead of you know, people that you can identify along like racial or ethnic lines. Uh, now we are drawing the identification barrier along political lines. So that obviously makes it very difficult to identify people who are within the group and without the group. So basically you have these two groups who, if you're not in it, you're out. So if you are not in the Proud Boys, if you are not in QAnon, if you are not in the Oath Keepers, you are an enemy. You you are either brainwashed by the state or you are, uh, you know, you are an enemy. You're a pedophile, blood blood drinker, whatever conspiracy theory they want to come up with today. Pick that's one. what you are. Uh, is what we would refer to it as symbolic violence. How does this symbolic violence, which does not re necessarily require violence, how can this lead to violence? So in January 6th, we had the proximity to leadership and we had what we would refer to as alpha groups. People within the group who had coordinated plans to basically conduct violence on that day. And they expected people to join in. Yes. They, there were people that um, obviously were not part of the pre-planning for the um, January 6th terror attack on the Capitol. But we, we, we know that they 
they banked on the fact that it was going to be a large group. That was part of what was going right for them. Um, they knew that there was going to be this large protest, whether or not intended to be violent when first orchestrated. They knew one, that the group would provide them cover. So in which we've talked about um, throughout this whole thing is that the group provides protection in a sense, their safety in numbers. That works in good and bad ways. Um, they're less likely to be noticed, can get away with things easier. Easier. And also, again, um, it's like this diffusion of responsibility for the individuals who were not part of the planning there that they knew that once they started, that other people would join in because of, I mean, whether or not they understood psychologically or just anecdotally, like they were expecting others to join in. Even if the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were the only groups to make it into the Capitol building, which they weren't. We can still see right. the ex extensive participation in, in violence and the social acceptance to commit violence against other people. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it, we, we saw specific credible threats for against uh, high ranking government officials. I can name them, <laughs> they're in the news, but you know, it's that's the thing is like if I told you the names certain people would say oh well they deserve to die because of x y and z so even though it was a specific group of people who did this there are still people who I guess this is kind of the free rider dilemma who would say well yeah maybe they did intend to kill insert Pence here. <laughs> Maybe they did int intend to kill the vice president, but you know what? He deserved it because he he didn't stand up for President Trump. And so that kind of thinking, that kind of idea says like, well, you know, that's why I can get away with it is because people understand and they accept my way of thinking. Um, so it isn't necessarily the only people on the ground that matter but society as a whole that says, okay, well, I can storm the Capitol because we control the government. Mike Pence is a tra traitor, you know, and people won't convict me because who's gonna convict? <laughs> they legitimately thought that they were going to be able to walk in without any opposition. And many of them were absolutely shocked when they were um, later, contacted by the Department of Justice to be brought up on charges. Um, they, a lot of people couldn't believe that they were being um, targeted by the criminal justice system for their involvement, by their by a certain number of their peers that maybe didn't agree with their choice, by like the media uh, writ large, they, people were, were legitimately surprised that they met any opposition to their trying to overthrow the Capitol because they felt like whether it be the um, vocal or the silent majority were going to support them enough that they could get away with it. Um, they really thought like, oh no, it, it, it couldn't happen to me. Like I'm not going to get caught because they really thought they had enough support um, globally, like nationally, I guess, not globally, but nationally, that they would get away with it and, and, and be more successful than they were, even though um, they did make it pretty far within the capital. Yeah. And this also like really shows the 
um, it's, it's kind of like a very special um, example of how deindividuation in crowds can affect behavior because it shows that idea of one, just like the very basic us versus them, the othering, the creation of in-groups and out-groups. It was already done before it was started, um, but it was definitely um, furthered with online rhetoric and um, then we also see the resource mobilization, the ability for certain elite members of this right-wing movement to mobilize in order to do violent acts or um, even just like gain entry into the capital. Um, we then see the sorts of things with the non-group affiliated individuals and how crowds affect behavior in the moment, not even just the planning of these sorts of things and their um, evocation, but like literally just in the moment, individuals deciding to get involved. And we, we know that um, the bigger the crowd, the easier it is for people to start acting violently, the more violent they're going to act. And we, we know that there is a little bit of a difference between how the crowd can affect people who spent time planning for this versus how just being in a crowd would affect um, their decision with with no planning. They had they had no intentions of going there violently. We know that there are people there to peacefully protest, which um, is fine to to peacefully protest for what you believe in. But the fact is is that um, even those peaceful protesters were in, induced towards violence by um, personality characteristics. Um, we know that personality characteristics influence individuals to choose to engage in a riot. This is called selection. Um, so there is some like choice there. It's not just like the crowd becomes a hive mind and you can't do anything but engage with the crowd. But these individuals still like to go back to like um, some more basic criminological theories like rational choice and deterrence theory, they still made that cognitive calculation of the risk of being involved. And what we see is that because of the larger crowd, there was a less responsibility, so a greater diffusion of responsibility, decreased chance for punishment and blame, and that makes it that makes that risk calculation go down. So if you're a, a rational person deciding, do I I had no no plans before this moment to engage in this? Do I want to engage? The answer yes becomes easier to um, get to because of the nature of being in a crowd. Yeah, and I think especially with QAnon, it's it's very interesting because you kind of hear in extremist right-wing rhetoric this idea and, and this is very uh this, this is kind of a mainstream idea in neo-nazi rhetoric that we are the silent majority we 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 are everywhere we are everyone um so this kind of rhetoric is very popular in neo-nazi rhetoric um, and it's effective. It makes it, people feel hard. protected. Yeah, it's, it makes it's, them feel right. It yeah. helps them with that um, re it breaks down release that of cognitive dissonance. Yeah, yeah we get, it's it's one of those things you keep coming back to it, but like it it's just it's true. So, Thinking think, that you have support helps you feel less bad about doing yeah. something that you maybe would have felt bad if you didn't have any support. It, but I also think it's very interesting that QAnon adopts similar rhetoric. So like where we go, one we go all. 
So that's basically saying like, we're all in. If one of us is that way, we're all that way. And I think that that's a, that's a very dangerous mindset, especially in, in the idea of a crowd. So, uh, I mean, what's in the same, what's in a name? It's this idea that uh, we are the silent, minor silent majority. We, more people think like us, they just don't wanna say, um, you know, that may be the case. I don't know, I don't wanna think so. Uh, but it is, it definitely has a very important message both within and without. So while yes. it does rally at the base, it also intimidates people on the outside that says like, oh my God, what if they're right? What if, what if everybody is a neo-Nazi? So it's, it's kind of this idea that you hear the neo-Nazi rhetoric that says like, we are the, we are the silent majority. We are everywhere. We are everyone. And you're thinking, Oh my God, is that true? Like that's that yeah. that that's a very classic idea of intimidation on an out group. Really? And the rhetoric is like strategically designed to kind of be ambiguous like that, where yeah. it works to as both a rallying point and an intimidation factor. Like where we go one, we go all is not only like rallying to the degree that you're as a member of that group supposed to just blindly support any action of any other person in that group, um, which is like extremely controlling. And even though it seems ridiculous, very effective um, in, you know, that phrase being, if that phrase becomes something that you, you're saying over and over and over again, or reading or hearing, it does have an effect on you and it does al will alter your behavior eventually. Yeah. And, but it also acts in the, the reciprocal way where it gives the illusion of a large base of support that makes um, other people more afraid to contest them. And it's kind of like part of the, the rhetoric and propaganda that leads towards recruitment as well. Yeah, and I think that's, that's something that I think we've kind of forgotten about in this, in, in our lecture is the idea of solidarity. This very much in groups, if you are all participating in a group, you are participating in solidarity with something. So yeah, you, which, yeah, going back to talking about the chimpanzees, even because why not bring up chimpanzees as often as possible? Um, you can look at the evolutionary ad, like, it's evolutionarily advantageous to be part of a social group. And it's so it is advantageous to individuals to be pro-social within a group. So not only does jo is joining a group something that's driven by our desire to feel safe and um, protected, but it also influences us to be pro-social in that group that we find um, that we find safe harbor with and protection from, because it keeps you established as an important member of the group. And we um, do see this a little bit, uh, I meant to mention this a while ago, but without those feelings of like needlessness or threat to your identity, we see um, as a very frequent predictor for engagement in terroristic behaviors. So we see that threat, feeling threat to your identity, social injustice, like you and your in-group have been wronged, or feeling threatened so you feel like some some agency is 
somehow threatening your in-group and therefore your identity. Um, we see this uh, with terrorists and also that need to be significant is a theory in terrorism called the quest for significance where people who engage in terroristic behavior do it because be becoming part of a group and belonging and um, being active within a group gives them purpose. It gives, it gives them an identity for those people who hadn't really crafted one or were feeling a little lost um, or it gives them a rallying point and it gives them um, something to feel proud of almost. Yeah, and I, I think social media really plays into this idea of community building. So now you can essentially pick and choose, especially in the age where all of our social interaction is online now every like i definitely i can't I, I can't even recall a a conversation that i've had that did not have the computer as a mediator over the past year except for something with my husband so it's uh social media back back when i was a but young undergrad uh we were studying the effects of what we called new media. That is how old I am that social media was once called new media. Um, and essentially uh, my group was tasked with creating this populist campaign <laughs> to see if we could basically get this fake person that we completely invented into this big campaign that we had for the school and it ended up he was so popular santiago fernandez he was a very populist campaign very student oriented he was an he had an entire backstory that fit in with the population he was an immigrant from el salvador uh he, we went 100 percent. it turned into this thing where people thought he was a real person he was invented his Facebook picture is a stock photo he people will still wish him a happy birthday and it's been almost nine years since we invented didn't he say that people could have sworn that they'd met him too so you kind yeah. of created a mandela effect as well yeah yeah they 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 swear they've met him and it's like no you haven't i swear i promise you you have not met him he is not real um maybe there's some poor kid on campus who looks a lot like the stock photo maybe i don't think so but uh but there was this idea that, of community that we built around him that basically said like you know join us we want a better community for wt west texas AM. and all of the activity was centered online uh so this idea you can't confirm that he's a real person one and two you know he got to we got to create his persona we got to create his beliefs and that really resonated with people who went to wt and we really catered to our our audience on that and it also shows like how easy it is to mislead people with misinformation online it's Absolutely. very easy to convince people something is true when it is not Absolutely. Yeah, it's misinformation is probably one of the greatest threats to our democracy at this point. Uh, it is so, so difficult to combat because people don't want to close that cognitive dissonance. They don't want to believe that someone within their community, their group would be lying to them about, uh, I don't know, 
5G vaccines. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> reptil, reptil. And it also, <laughs> the lizard people. The lizard um, people. <laughs> Storm area, <laughs> area 51. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, that was, that was the OG, um, I feel like. Mine, mine was like Naruto run to, uh, to area 51. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so funny. Like, I honestly thought that that was the funniest thing ever. Yeah, back when the internet was just like for fun. Yeah, we, um, did see some of this like online activity impact, especially with the there were capital riots and recent um, events in our country. And what part of that is goes back to kind of what I was saying about how um, once you are part of an in-group, it becomes easier to ignore the complaints or warnings of an out-group and easier to believe the things that you're hearing within your in-group. And that kind of comes down to this idea of confirmation bias where things that agree with your narrative or your point of view or your, your schema or perception of things um, are readily believed and consumed and anything that disagrees with that or contests that is seen as untrue or not possible. And what happens is that individuals start only paying attention to the things that support their argument, support their ideas, support their way of life. And that's, that's all they're using to educate themselves or build their opinions. So they're stuck constantly reaffirming their misinformation or their specific ideologies as correct because that's the only that's the only information that they're they're choosing to consume as true. We I have read some research and we do see I used to do that as a job and like no more trial consulting just no more. Um, but we used to but we see researchers have seen that what happens is that individuals who are posting this rhetoric will have like normal accounts where they're relatively apolitical and not posting a whole lot of contentious stuff, you know, selfies, animal photos, things like that. And then one, one post, they post, they share a post that's political or comment or create a post that's political in nature. And they see a huge influx of like and shares by like-minded individuals. They get a huge increase in attention. People are commenting, they're having a conversation, they're you know, engaging with each other, which is hugely reinforced, like a huge reinforcement um, psychologically to anyone. So not only is like the community, the sense of community and the sense of engagement rewarding, but so is the attention, the likes, the shares. Um, if there's anything we know about social media, it's that like people liking and sharing your posts really do have a like psychological reward um, effect on you, like where you are actually experiencing reward in the psychological and biological sense where yeah. your body is considering a certain stimulus as, as good and that it orchestrates an approach mechanism toward it. So it's something that you want to keep doing to get that reward response. And so then we see an escalation in their behavior from like normal posting to one post that got them a lot of attention to like very naturally, even though some people are, a lot of people are condemned for like attention seeking behavior. This isn't something that's rare. This isn't something that like 
most people don't do. So I think that it's really important to kind of realize that like, we all do this in some way, not always violent extremists, but we all kind of have this like psychological need for reward and appreciation, attention that we feed off of. But with these individuals, what we see is that that escalates really rapidly to like forming of groups on Facebook pages and creating this like online community because being active online creates a sense of community for these people. They feel empowered by participating in and advancing a cause. And then also they're just very much so getting a, a sense of reward from the agreement and the attention and um, this like sense of togetherness that they're getting from the people that support their ideas. And the individuals that we saw with the Capitol riot, especially were people who um, were active in their cause. So they were actively posting information, creating information, creating groups and pages. And this differs psychologically from passive news consumption um, where people who, who might agree with certain things just read it, internally agree and move on. You know, they don't, they don't really post it. They don't um, really comment on it or engage in conversations, at least like on social media. I'm sure that most individuals do with like their close groups of friends and things, but it's not a, um, active consumption of news to then turn around and use it on social media to like um, rally behind or to gain attention because you're posting it. I think this this also kind of goes back to the um, moral disengagement and the opponent process theory. So that the opponent process theory is that process A, process B. Uh, when we see social media, it's a highly addictive platform. You know, every time your phone goes off, every time you get a text message, a Snapchat, uh, every time you get a like on Instagram or Facebook or a retweet, you get a dopamine response, you know, and, uh, and so for some that is like way more effectual on behavior than others. And for some, the sense of reward that they get from it is much greater. Yeah. So, so when, when we look at this type of behavior, we see people who, like let's take influencers for example that's you know their dopamine response is tied to how many likes uh how how many you know messages dms the attention that they get on social media and so when we see like this type of group forming then we can see the reward system is directly tied to a group identity in this case. Going back to the January 6th terror attack on the Capitol, like like you said, we you specifically saw that the ri violent <laughs> the rise in violent rhetoric spiked in the weeks prior to the Capitol riots. Um, so this is kind of going to shift us into a conversation about the individuation in a very unique environment, and that's the online environment. And what we saw is that right-wing groups planned and talked openly about the attack online. Um, the online and, and like this would seem like absurd, right? Like social media is prominent enough now that you would think that people would understand that when they post things on the on the internet, it doesn't go away, Fair and enough. that almost <laughs> anyone can see it. But I guess not. And the reason that it might seem absurd, but to like in the moment and to many, it's they don't act um, like it is absurd 
and they do post things online that maybe they shouldn't. Um, we, we know that this has to do with the online disinhibition effects. And the online environment can give people a sense of anonymity and security, even if this is kind of a false sense of comfort. And the fact that so many of the rioters continuously posted online during the attack illustrates how the online environment can cause people to feel protected from real life consequences of their actions. Much like being in a group helps you make that calculation of like, oh, my risk for getting in trouble is less because so many people are also doing this with me. I mean, not only it makes you less identifiable and um, less like isolatable, you can't just be pulled from the group, um, as easily when you're in a large group that's all engaging in violent behavior, um, being online kind of gives people the same sort of feel where they feel protected from the consequences of their actions because of the environment that on being online provides. And that is a sense of anonymity and invisibility. And what's key about this is that this effect happens even if this is a, providing people a false sense of comfort. So we know from a study on um, behavior in real life that um, found individuals in a room with dimmed lights, so the lights were kind of dark, um, were found to cheat more than those in a lit room. So the darkness like didn't actually keep people from seeing them. They were still taking the test. People had still walked them to this room. They knew, like, even if they didn't know their names, they had talk to them for the few moments that it took for them to get situated. And um, however, it didn't matter. The people in the in the room that it was dark cheated more than people who were in the room that it wasn't, even though either way they knew that their, their test was going to be graded all the same. And additionally, this happens um, in a in a very weird way with sunglasses. And the same researcher found that participants wearing sunglasses behaved more selfishly than those who weren't when in a, in a laboratory situation. And here, the illusion of anonymity promoted the increase of self-interested behaviors. So these things weren't actually protecting the individual from being identified at all, but they thought that it was. It gave them the, the illusion that they were um, more protected and less identifiable. And I mean, like you see this with like wearing hoods and sunglasses and masks in crime. Like it has a very logical um, like route to it where if people don't know who you are, you can't get in trouble for something because they can't find you. But um, it's really important that they found that this didn't actually have to be real, that it just needed, you just need to perceive um, anonymity and invisibility and it changes your behaviors towards being more self-interested or antisocial um, because that is like very um, analogous to the online environment. So online anonymity is a fact, is an actual real factor. You can mask who you are, but even in situations where um, you are putting your face out there, like we saw with the Capitol rioters, um, they, they think that because they're online, that it gives them this sense of protection that like, oh, no one in real life is going to like do anything about it because this is happening online. And they were obviously wrong, but they were very surprised when they discovered that they were incorrect. And so what we see here is that like 
this disinhibition effect is not is not always bad. We focus on like a lot of bad things because I think that it's the most important um, to learn about so that we can kind of make sure that we are checking ourselves on the day to day. Um, but disinhibition we've seen can be split into two forms, toxic or benign. And very logically, benign disinhibition is um, good things that come from being able to be anonymous or feel invisible or feel that little extra level of protection. Um, it alleviates a little bit of the fear of social rejection. Sorry. And um, with benign disinhibition, individuals can like re reveal suppressed emotions. Um, before before um, like recent changes, or I guess not even recent changes, it's just like over time this changed, but originally therapists actually sat behind the person they were talking to. So because the person couldn't see them and felt more open about expressing um, their emotions. So similarly, benign disinhibition offers that opportunity for you to reveal emotions, fears, your, your deepest wishes, um, and also show unusual acts of kindness or generosity or go out of their way to help others that they may not in real life. But then obviously you have the, the, the opposite side of that, which is the toxic disinhibition, which people may be more, more rude, more violent, critical, hateful, threatening, or um, even visit places of perversion, crime, and violence online when they wouldn't engage in those behaviors in real life. So both online, I mean, both benign and uh, toxic forms of disinhibition are um, involve the opportunity for individuals to engage in behaviors that they may not in real life or in the real world. Um, a quote that I pulled from a paper I read says, as cyberspace expands into new environments, many of its inhabitants see themselves as innovative, independent minders, explorers and pioneers, even as rebels. And so it goes to show that like the online environment kind of offers this opportunity to kind of characterize yourself and to live this life a little bit beyond the real world. And in and of, in and of itself, this characterization um, offers what we've been talking about in real life, this diffusion of responsibility, going back to it. It allows you to feel less responsible for your actions. Um, people don't think that their online actions are going to have real life consequences. So that, that risk calculation is, again, a little bit easier to make, much like being in a crowd, it's a little bit easier to get away with things online when you can conceal your identity. On that point, you know, we can build our identity based on who we we want to be online. Yes. We, we can't just like think of catfish, for example. Like we're, yeah. you know, uh, who could really be, you know, a six foot five, absolutely beautiful, drop dead gorgeous model is actually you know, a dude who plays World of Warcraft on, on, you know, in his mom's basement, you know, it's, uh, we can create our own identity versus, you know, right. in the physical world, we aren't able to kind of create that identity. Uh, it's thrust upon us and we have to accept our own reality as it is. So when we look at this extremist rhetoric, there's this idea that, they're changing their identity based on who they want to be. They want to be a patriot. They want to be someone who cares deeply for their country. Right. The hottests want to be martyrs. They want to be pure and they want to, you know, 
they they want to unite Islam under the banner of you know jihad. When when we look at extremist rhetoric and we look at extremist violence, we see this idea that we're going to make our our cause altruistic. We're going to make our identity right. altruistic. We are not terrorists. We're patriots. And then comes the idea of invisibility. And this is different, even though you would think that it's probably the exact same thing as um, anonymity. It's a little bit different in the sense that, like, well, obviously online you can't see each other. So this one kind of combines the idea of not being not being aware of um, the other people online. So it kind of gives you the sense to feel like you can act without judgment. And um, it gives people the courage to, to go places and act in ways that they would otherwise would not. Going back to that question of like, if you could be invisible for a day and you knew you would never get in trouble for your actions, what would you do? And what we have found, big reveal, is that most people pick something not pro-social. So when given the opportunity, over 39% of people chose something antisocial in nature, um, or 36%. And 19 was non-normative, so that's the second highest. So the first highest was just antisocial, and then non-normative at 19. And this non-normative behaviors are those that clearly violate social norms, but does not directly help or harm another person, to clarify. And then 36% were neutral, which was kind of like a catch-all category. And then the, the real disappointer is that only 9% of participant responses were pro-social, only nine. So that really shows you that how the, the idea of being invisible really disinhibits people's behavior to go as far as most people would be antisocial and then another large majority of people would be um, non-normative. And so it really goes to show the how being invisible can like really affect your behavior. See, and, and this is where I'll tell you what I would do. And I'm not even gonna pretend, I'm not even gonna pretend that what I would do would be like altruistic. Like <laughs> I would drain Jeff Bezos' bank account. It's where like I get really lame because like my initial thoughts were one, stealing a greyhound because that's the type of dog I want, but it takes forever to get them. Um, because a lot of them are like abused or race dogs and um, the process to adopt <laughs> yeah the process to adopt is like uh long and I don't want to wait so that would be one and then my other one was like I feel like I would definitely break into a zoo and like play with all of the animals and then I'm sure I would do something to acquire some sort of money because I'm bored yeah and so just the, the last few things to talk about with online disinhibition um uh, the asynchronous aspect of the internet also allows for a little bit dis of disinhibition, much like not having to deal with that humanistic aspect that invisibility gets you. Um, no immediate response is necessary um, online as is with face-to-face -face communication. So you can say something and walk away and never deal with it again. And not having to cope with someone's immediate reaction can lead to disinhibition. Um, and then there are two concepts that um, are a little bit more abstract. And one is the phenomenon that occurs when you are 
um, like communicating via text and not face-to-face. -face. And this actually has to do with when individuals assign a mental voice for the person that they are communicating with. So, you know, when you read a text message, oftentimes you'll read it in your friend's voice or you'll hear it, you know, in your friend's voice or you, you know the tone that they're implying. So, you know, when to read a word sarcastically. Or, you, or, or we read all, all of our emails from Neil in like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 in the British accent. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> this can uh, work. Um, this works as like your brain's way of kind of like substituting, you know, and making a distinction between like what, what you're reading and what you're thinking. And so what happens is like this seems insane, but it's true, is that this concept of kind of having this internal conversation um gives people a sense of safety like you're basically kind of talking to yourself and or like it's more like intra-psychic and what people end up like what ends up happening is that people feel free to do and say things that they would maybe not in reality um this is also the next uh, tied to the next concept which is dissociative imagination and I, I like to think of that situation where, you know, you're having like a fake argument with your mom or your dad about something like, you know, when you were a kid and you were gonna have to go ask for permission to do something like go to a concert or a sleepover or something and you like mentally prepared the conversation you're gonna have with your parents in your head before you went and started. So it's very similar to that where like people start to, to develop mental characters for other people that they encounter online, even if they know them. Um, and these, these like mental characters that are kind of created in cyberspace, um, people begin to disassociate them. That's why it's called disassociative imagination. They begin to disassociate them from real life. And just that psychological shift that makes something seem less real creates a disinhibition, dis disinhibition effect. Wow. Um, and so it allows for the dissociation of actions online with actions in real life. Therefore, you feel like you can do things that you maybe wouldn't in the real world because of um, this online disinhibition effect. Anyway, we're going to wrap up our, our lecture. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed our podcast. Yeah. Uh, we really enjoyed Sorry making for their ramblings. We like yeah. talking about this stuff if you can't tell. Yeah, we are... <laughs> uh, PhD students who are absent of a physical space in order to discuss certain things. So sometimes uh, we go on rants because we have no other social connection. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like we haven't had the opportunity to rant about this in a group setting yet. So allows for some connection. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure I'm getting a good dopamine response from this. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we'll see y'all in class.